As we come now before God's word, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8? That's Hebrews chapter 8. This text by now will sound familiar to us, uh, but here we are again. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, now as we sit before your word and come to you in this way, we know that we don't look to human wisdom, but these things are spiritually discerned. So would you teach us now by your spirit, cause us to know you more so that we would glorify you more. And we ask your help by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews in chapter 8. Uh, we'll begin again here in verse 6 and read through the end. This is Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. Now, if you were to ask a person what it means at the core to be a Christian, you might hear a number of things. You might hear a person mention that, that a Christian has to have faith in Jesus. Uh, they might mention how a, a Christian has complete, full forgiveness of sins in Jesus. They, they might mention how a Christian is born again in Jesus. You might also hear a person mention that a Christian has a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's not untrue. We do have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is closer to the language of the Bible to say instead that we have a 
covenant relationship with Jesus. It's personal, but it's a covenant relationship. All believers now relate to God through the new covenant in Jesus, which is why we're spending so much time now in this part of Hebrews looking at the new covenant. If you were here with us last week, we looked at the first part of the new covenant, uh, which uh, is here in the middle of verse 10, which is where God talks about how he is going to write his good laws upon our hearts. Because the people, we the people, broke the covenant with God. We broke his laws, we broke his ways, we showed that we did not love him. And so God did not change the law, but he changed the people. Instead of writing his law on external tablets of stone, he wrote his law on internal tablets of the heart. So God now shapes the Christian to love what God loves. This is a big part of the New Covenant. This week, we're going to look at the second part that's mentioned about the New Covenant here, and it it starts at the end of verse 10. Let me read it again, just so we have it fresh in our minds. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So if I can say this another way, the need for one thing is going to pass away because it's being replaced by something better. So just as the days are coming when we will no longer need police, As much as we love police and are thankful for them, we will no longer need police because all the people of God will be perfect law keepers. So also the days are coming when we will no longer need teachers, at least teachers of particular things, because all of the people of God will truly know God, which I suppose will put me out of a job but that's all right. <laughs> that means what I've done is made, made complete. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that Bible teaching is unimportant. We know this. The Bible teaches very much the opposite. It just means that teaching is a means to a greater goal. Teaching serves a particular purpose outside of itself, and there is a day that comes in which that purpose is fulfilled. Until that day comes, teaching, especially when it comes to the things of God, teaching is incredibly important. The Bible says this all over the place. We can see the importance of teaching everywhere. But, but just for an example, we're going to look at the book of Acts. And I'm going to blitz through these. I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time. They're printed in your bulletin. If you, if you looked at the list of verses uh, printed in the insert and gulped a little bit, we're not going to extensively look at all these. Those are just there in case you want to check my work. And please do that sometimes. Look at these verses. But if you look at the book of Acts and the pattern of teaching here, if we look just at the open, the very first words in the book of Acts are these. In the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The author of Luke here in the book of Acts is telling us the content of his first book, which is the gospel according to Luke. And in Luke, uh, he says, I wrote there what Christ did and taught. Of all the things that Luke could tell us about Jesus, he, he could have talked about how Jesus heals, how Jesus uh, did miracles all the way up into the resurrection, that Jesus cared for people around him, that he listened, that he had compassion, that he rebuked people, that he saved them from sin by his work on the cross. All of those things are true, but here Luke specifically mentions that Christ was a teacher. He was more than a teacher, we know that. But he was often called by people around him, teacher, and sometimes Jesus called himself the teacher. We see that all through Luke. So now we come to the book of Acts, and in the days after Luke, now in Acts, after Jesus has ascended back to the right hand of the Father, the apostles are carrying on the teaching of Jesus. So in chapter 2, we see how important it is because people were gathered around, it's, uh, they're described as being devoted to the apostles' teaching. And in chapter 4 of Acts, then, uh, we see that um, they faced some opposition against their teaching, that they were threatened, they were told to stop teaching, so it became very costly for them to teach these things. And then by chapter 15, we see that some of the teaching in the church had gone askew, Wrong things were being taught, and so they called a council to redirect, to call back to what Jesus had actually taught. And then in chapter 18, we see how intensive that teaching was, that Paul, in all of his traveling around teaching, stopped in Corinth for a year and a half because their teaching had gone off, and he needed to teach them better. And in chapter 20, we see how personal the teaching is that Paul not only taught in the public, in the temples, but he went from house to house teaching each family. Until by the very last words of Acts, we hear these things. Paul here is in prison in Rome. These are the last sentences, verse 30 of chapter 28. He, that's Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Teaching is the first and the last word of the book of Acts. So we see that Christians in the New Testament greatly needed teaching. Of course, we know that it's no different in the Old Testament. They needed teaching just as much. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those together, if we were Jewish, we would call those five books the Torah, which we sometimes translate as the law, but the word Torah means the teaching. 
The first five books of the Bible are called the teachings. So the, all the account of creation and, and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and, and Moses and the Exodus and the Ten Commandments and all of that, those aren't just stories. They're not just a list of rules. These are teachings for the people of God. And each person bore individual responsibility to carry on that teaching. We see this mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. Just a few verses here in chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11, verse, where is it, 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You get the pattern here, yes? This teaching was so important that he says, lay it on your heart, your hands, before your eyes. Always give your kids this teaching of God. This is not only something that we do in church. This teaching is for playtime, for nap time, for mealtime. That we're to seize moments, opportunities to teach our children about God, what is true about God, who he is, and what he's done. Now, even though the focus here in Deuteronomy is on kids, we know then that this is not something that we grow out of. Uh, we need this just as much as kids do. We need this teaching at playtime and mealtime and at bedtime. And sometimes this teaching of God is to come through leaders, like Paul, like Timothy, like me, pastors and elders. Sometimes we're to teach each other, that each one would teach his neighbor and his brother. And the fact that we're to teach each other is part of the reason why earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author was so harsh on his listeners for drinking milky doctrine, for being poor students, because he says, by now, you all, all of you ought to be teachers. You ought to know God so well that you could teach your neighbor and your brother and your children these things. Now, I say this not just to pile obligation upon us or, or, or to, keep, to heap us up with, with guilt about how I don't feel equipped enough or I seem to have failed in my teaching, although I hope the Lord works on your heart in those things. I say all of this is because we need to see just how desperately we need to be taught. The reason we need teaching 
is because we suffer from a lack of true knowledge of the Lord. We are not inborn with a true knowledge of God. And I think this is probably intuitive for many of us. Infants are not inborn with a knowledge, a true knowledge of letters. They're not inborn with a true knowledge of numbers or of manners or of morals. Children have to be taught these things. So in a similar way, they have to be taught true things about God. And yet some still resist this idea that we need to be taught the truth about God. Some people will tell us, do not teach doctrines of God. That's indoctrination. Those sorts of things are too rigid, they're too uninclusive, they're too closed-minded. You should just let people figure out God for themselves. You should let people find their own higher power. That's a popular idea, but it is wrong, and it is very harmful. Let me give you an example. You probably have heard this before. You know the story of the blind men and the elephant? It's become kind of culturally popular for a while. If you've not heard it before, well, good, I get to tell you. Uh, there's a story, imagine, made up, it's a, a parable, I suppose, where there are these blind, lame and blind men who've never uh, seen or encountered an elephant before, but somehow they come upon an elephant. And, and each of these men are sitting at a different part, and they can't see, but they can feel. And so they reach out to touch this creature in front of them. And one of the blind men is holding on to the elephant's leg and says, Ah, you know, this creature is like a tree, thick and strong. The next blind man over is, is next to the belly of the elephant and says, No. This creature is like the ground, broad and rough. And the next blind man over uh, happens to be able to feel the, the, the tusk and says, no, this creature is like a bone, smooth and hard. And the next blind man over gets the, the trunk when he can snag a piece of it as it wiggles around. And he says, no, no, this creature is like a snake. It's soft and winding. And as the story goes, then the storyteller at the end tells us all of these blind men were right. They were all telling us part of the creature. So also the truth of God takes all of our experiences, takes all of our religions together to know the truth. That's not true. And actually, this approach is just as rigid, just as uninclusive, just as close-minded as it says Christianity is. Because this approach says that any religion who makes an absolute claim about God is wrong. They're telling most of the world that they're wrong. You're out of the club. It is just as close-minded. This approach is its own form of indoctrination. It is presenting to us a set of values and calling them true. This approach is a teaching. 
the secret to this thing is the story only works if there's a storyteller that can actually see everything, that proclaims to know the truth about the elephant and the, what the blind men are touching. If one of them said, no, no, this creature's kind of feathery, he says, no, no, you're, that's a parrot. That's not part of, you know. The, it only works if the storyteller says he knows what's true about God. So this approach acts as a teacher for us, even though the teaching is bad. So others might take an opposite approach. You know, some, instead of saying, you know, all things that people say we know about God are true, some would take the opposite approach and say, none of the things that people say we know about God are true. At least we can't know if they're true or not. We can't really know whether God's like a tree or like the ground or like a snake or like a bone. We can't know that, and so we just kind of dismiss all of it. That's called agnosticism. And it also is a form of indoctrination. It is presenting us with a set of doctrines, with a set of values. It is claiming to know what we are able to know as true or not. This also acts as a teacher for us, even though the teaching is bad. When we come to the Bible, then, the Bible acts as a teacher for us. It is giving us a set of doctrines, and at least it's honest about telling us that it's trying to teach us. It's not just kind of trying to sneak it in there so we won't notice. It'll say, it's saying, listen, I want you to believe this because it's true. And it does not call us to just shut our eyes and believe even though it doesn't make sense. The Bible does call us to believe, but it says what I am teaching about God is true and reasonable. It fits with the world as we see it. I love how Luke opens up his account of the gospel of Jesus. If you read the gospel according to Luke, these are his first words in the opening of his gospel. I think these are helpful for us. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He writes this to us, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, he starts this whole account by saying, listen, I interviewed the witnesses on this. And in fact, I'm going to record all of their names so you can check with them on what they've said. I'm going to give you a complete account of Jesus to show his life, his miracles up to and including his resurrection from the dead. I'm going to show you that his disciples were not just blind followers on a whim, nor were they trying to start some sort of revolution, but these are people who followed Jesus at great cost to themselves. And I'm going to put all of this in order so you can follow it. Thank you, Luke. In other words, he wants us to see and know that what we have been taught is not just a legend, 
It is not just a set of philosophical ideas. It is not a power play of the religious elite. What we have been taught is certain. But in order to get to that certainty, we first need to know what we have been taught. We can't have certainty about a teaching unless we first have the teaching. The word that Luke uses here that's translated taught is where we get the English word catechism. Catechism, by the way, means the instruction. So we know that our Bible is the only authority for us on the things of God. But we often use other helps to help wrap our minds around what the Bible has taught us, things like the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism. And size-wise, it's much easier to manage. You know, if, if you get intimidated by the size of the Bible, the Westminster Shorter Catechism will help you. I encourage you, by the way, to use some of these things in your own home. They're not too hard for you. They will help you grow in your knowledge of God. We need these sorts of things. Catechisms, creeds, theology, doctrine. We should stop believing that all of that is just religious jargon or that all of that is just for scholars. We want these things to teach us what's true according to God's word. Because if the Lord does not teach us what is true about himself through his word, something else will jump in to try to teach us. Culture. Culture will gladly try to be your teacher. The television will be your teacher. Your fishing buddies will be your teacher. The clouds, the grass maybe, will be your teacher. Sesame Street will be your teacher. Or Bourbon Street. Or Wall Street. Fox News will be your teacher. Or CNN will be your teacher. Your own heart will be your teacher. Or your own experience will be your teacher. We are all learning from somewhere who is your teacher. Jesus is crying out to us in the pages of the scripture, take my yoke upon you and learn from me and there you will find rest for your souls. We want Jesus to be our teacher. Teaching desperately matters. Which means we need to pay attention to what is teaching us or who is teaching us, including the voice you're hearing right now. Consider whether or not I am pointing us back to the word of God as a source of truth, or am I just giving you my own ideas from my own head? 
We also need to consider what's happening in the other six days of our week. Consider how we're being taught by which teachers and whether those teachers are drawing us closer to God or further away. All of this is very important. But this sermon is not about who's teaching us. In fact, it's not really about teaching at all. Because that's not what the author of Hebrews is focusing on here. Did you notice I lost track of Hebrews a bit there? Let's wrap back around. Because in Hebrews here, when the author's talking about the new covenant, the author gives us a new twist on teaching that on the face seems like it's about to undercut everything that I've just said. Let me read the section again. Listen for the part on teachings, chapter, verse 10. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Why won't they teach? For, here's the reason, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. They will no longer be teaching about the Lord because every Christian will truly know God. This is part of the hope and the joy of the new covenant. The necessity for being taught will vanish away because you'll know God. And this is not just a mental thing. I think we know this. It's not just that we could pass a quiz about God, that somehow we'll one day be omniscient and know everything. It's, it's not as if, you know, in the hereafter, trivia nights are no fun because we're going to get all the questions right anyway. Or that we'll get bored because there's nothing else to learn. That's not the point. Knowledge of God here, we know, is talking about something much bigger than our brains. That we'll know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we'll know the Lord as we might know a friend or a brother or a father, that we'll have personal relationship or covenant relationship with God. That's the promise of the new covenant, that he is our God and we are his people, that we belong to each other, and that's a good promise to look forward to. We want the assurance of this promise to cause us now to lean forward into it. So just like an engaged couple, a couple that's engaged to be married, there is some sense of waiting in that. They're waiting until their, until their wedding day for some forms of greater knowledge. They're waiting until the days in which they can share a roof together. They're waiting for the days in which they can join in physical intimacy together. They're waiting for the days in which they can build a family and a life together. A couple that loves each other this, day, this way doesn't just sit back and go, oh, well, the day will come. No, no. A couple like this desires to know each other, 
And that desire causes a sense of anticipation, of leaning forward, of wanting to know everything that they can know now, a couple that begins even in some sense to kind of study each other, to learn about the other because they want to know them. In a similar way, every Christian from the least to the greatest will one day know, know, know the Lord. But we don't just sit and wait until the wedding day comes. We encourage each other to know the Lord, to drink in as much as we can, that we share more truth about God with people who aren't Christians, that we teach each one his neighbor, and we share more truth about God with people who are Christians, that we teach each one his brother, so that we'll know God now. So let us know him. Let us press on to know the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. But help us to to value the partial knowledge you've given us now. Help us to know all that we can about you. Help us to desire to know you, that we would know you, that others would know you, that the world would know you as we long for this day in which we will all know you. We ask your mercy in this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.